Well, good evening. Good evening. There it is. All right. Good evening. It's good to, good to be with you. As Pastor Tim mentioned, uh, we are finishing our legacy series, which we started back in Genesis chapter 25, and we'll be concluding by looking at Genesis chapter 35 uh, tonight. As, as Pastor Tim mentioned, if you would so want to, all the messages are available uh, on our church website. If you missed one or two or want to go back um, and look at a certain passage, perhaps, uh, I don't know if I would highly recommend binge-watching me for 12 straight sermons. Um, it is shorter, though, than binge-watching all of the Lord of the Rings, I think. So, you know, you, and probably not as entertaining, but, uh, but we're, we're glad you're here. And, and I hope that for, for many of you I know who have been here most, if not, if not every single Sunday night, I hope that this sermon series has been, been an encouragement and helped us learn together. I know one of the, the amazing things about God's Word is I've, I've been a Christian for, for most of my life and studied God's Word for, for many years now. And I can turn to passages and to stories that I know and read God's truth and look at it and go, wow, I never saw that before. I never saw that. And God's word is an, un, an un, untapped well. It, it can never get to the bottom of its truth and the insights. And so I hope as, as we've gone through passages of scripture here in Genesis that, that aren't necessarily new to many of us, that it's still been a great reminder and, and we've learned new things of God's working and God's doing through this amazing story. Well, undoubtedly, uh, as, as you've seen over the last couple weeks, one of the, the biggest events that ha- that's happened in our world over the last month was the passing of former President George H.W. Bush a few weeks ago. Um, and I don't know about you, but I, I really enjoyed watching a lot of the, the news coverage with him, especially some of the interviews with lots of his family, the interviews that his granddaughters gave were, were so moving, I thought, um, the eulogy that his son gave at his funeral. I'm like, if you don't have tears in your eyes watching that, like check your pulse, you're probably dead. You know what I mean? It was just such a, such a moving thing. And one of the, the things that stands out, now a confession of my, my youth, um, I'm, I'm not old enough to really have much of a memory of him as a president, um, although I do remember it happening, but I, don't, I was too young to know a lot of his policies and what he's known as. Um, so most of it for me comes from, from looking back. But what, what struck me as so many people were talking about President Bush wasn't just his, his way in office. It certainly wasn't his policies or his procedures or the things he did or didn't do. But one of the greatest things that kept coming up over and over and over again as people talked about him was his relationship with his wife. That his, his relationship with him and Barbara, they were married for 73 years which was the longest that any of our presidents has been married. It was amazing uh, looking back and reading at some of the things that, that George Bush said about and to his wife. Um, in June 8, 2017, which was Barbara's last birthday in which she was alive, she passed in April of 2018. On June 8, 2017, uh, George H.W. Bush tweeted. Now, I don't know if he actually tweeted or if he just told like one of his grandkids or great-grandkids, hey, can you tell the internet this is what I say? Right, but he tweeted, happiest of birthdays to Barbara Pierce, I'm still the luckiest guy in the world. Um, He said this at one point, he said, I have climbed perhaps the highest mountain in the world, but even that cannot cannot hold a candle to being Barbara's husband. And the story came out, well, for over 70 years, every night before they went to bed, George's last words to his wife were, I love you, Barbie. I love you. 
And we, we, we are inspired by, by hearing a story of someone who, sh- who loved each other so sacrificially for 73 years and so faithfully for 73 years. And I don't know about you, but hearing that story of two people being so faithfully committed to one another inspires something within me that that's, that's how life should be. People who are so faithfully committed to one another through, through thick and through thin, through dark depression and horrible times in their life and through the great joys of life as well. Tonight, as we conclude our sermon series looking at the life of Isaac and Jacob, we're going to look at this faithfulness, not of people to each other, but the faithfulness of God to his people. And as I was looking back this week and I read back through all of these texts, these, these 11 chapters that we've gone through in Genesis, what struck out to me, especially then looking at Genesis 35, was just the faithfulness of God on display in Jacob's life. And as we look tonight, we'll pause throughout and just take notice of some of these truths of God's faithfulness that we see summarized here in this last chapter of this episode of the story in Genesis chapter 35. Um, to recap the story, last week we looked at how, how uh, Jacob had come back into the land, how he had reconciled with Esau, and then we saw the horrible crimes, this was actually two weeks ago, sorry, um, the, the horrible crimes committed by his two sons to the Shechemites, right? The, the, their deception after what had happened to their sister and their horrible crime um, that had put, put them at risk by killing all the people and Jacob's lack of response to it, and just the deceit and the disgrace that was filled in that passage. And tonight in Genesis chapter 35 is kind of a geographical move, step by step. There's a lot of places mentioned, but notice this, we're not, gonna, we're not here for a geography lesson. Jacob is basically moving south to where his father is. Every move that he makes throughout the text tonight, Jacob is moving south towards where his father Isaac is dwelling. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I'd encourage you to open Genesis chapter 35. The text is also found in the, in the handout you received When you arrive tonight, Genesis chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. There's four imperatives or four commands given to Jacob right at the beginning here of Genesis chapter 35. Arise, go up, dwell, and make an altar. Not suggestions by God, commands to Jacob on what he is to do. And he he reminds him as if Jacob needed any reminding of the significance of the place of Bethel. It was in Bethel, if you don't recall or weren't with us, in chapter 28, where Jacob and Esau had their great conflict. Esau was breathing under his breath hatred and murder towards his brother. And so Jacob ran away from home over 20 years ago in the story. And as he was leaving on his first night after he'd run away, God appeared to Jacob in a dream. And and God told Jacob that I will bring you back to this land. I will bless you and I will bring you safely back here. In the place in which God appeared to him, Jacob built an altar and he named it Bethel. And so God wants him to go back to the place kind of where for Jacob it all began. That was the first place in which he encountered the living God in a physical and kind of a personal way. And so he calls him to go back to this place, to Bethel. And for Jacob, this obviously is a special place. He doesn't need reminding of it, even though the text announces it to us that it's where God first showed up to him. And it's a sense of, Jacob, you're coming not just to Bethel, as in this is a location on the map, but this is a return to me. 
You're coming to God. This is, this is a return totally to commit yourself to God. Verse two. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So Jacob sees this, this as a significant event, something that his household, not just him, but all who are with him, need to prepare for. And so he gives them three instructions on their preparations before they're to leave on their journey towards Bethel. The first is to put away the foreign gods that are among you. Now this comes as quite surprising to us. Why are there foreign gods amongst Jacob's household? Where do these foreign gods come from? Well, we don't know precisely. Uh, the foreign gods very easily could have been the spoils of war from the Shechemites in chapter 34 that they had just raided. Typically, idols were made in a valuable sense, and so the materials would have been of some significance to them. And so they very easily could have been things that would have collected the, the booty, if you would, from, from the Shechemites in chapter 34. Also, if you remember back to chapter 31, as Jacob and his family was running away from Laban and escaping to go back to the promised land, do you remember one of the last things that Rachel did? She ran into the home of her father, into Laban, and it says that while he was gone, she went and she stole his household gods. She stole the gods of her father and brought them back with. So we don't know which. It could be both. It could be one or the other. It could be something else that they found. But this idea of they need to purify and ready themselves spiritually. This command to get rid of these idols. This is the the typical um, phraseology for when idols and foreign gods are dealt with. The same phrase comes up in 2 Kings 18 when Hezekiah, who's the greatest king in Judah, wants to totally get rid of everything dishonoring to God. And he says, get rid of all the foreign idols among you. So it's this idea of, of getting rid of everything of no compromise and following God alone. He says, to get rid of the gods among you, and secondly, to purify yourself. We don't know the exact idea that Jacob had in mind. He probably was thinking back to the incident that had just occurred, certainly something that defiled his whole family, what what had been done by his sons, both in the murder and then all of his sons in the raiding of this village. We do know that later in the, in the Old Testament that there's purification laws given and there's purity is a big thing, not just of the heart, but of, of yourself in coming to worship. And that the people are told to purify themselves. And then third, to change their garments or to put on new clothes. It's interesting, this is one of the first instances of this idea throughout Scripture. But throughout Genesis, all the way actually to Revelation, clothing is often a symbol of our standing before God. And it's why clothing such a big deal about it was made with the priests. It's why for the prophets, they say, even your righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And it's why when the ultimate picture of believers in heaven is guilt, we're not up there wearing black clothes. What are we wearing? We're wearing robes of white to symbolize our purity now in heaven before the Lord. Interesting enough, the New Testament also says that believers are clothed in Jesus Christ himself. Right? So clothing often has a significant impact on our standing before God. And new garments was an expression of take ourselves seriously, get things together, we're going to meet with God. And this is not just any God, but this is the true God, as he says, the God who's answered me in the day of my distress. 
verse four. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So we see Jacob first taking these idols, these foreign gods, and also the earrings and hiding them. Now, if you're wearing earrings, you shouldn't feel guilt like you've dishonored God. You need to go bury those underneath a tree in Lincoln Park. Right? That is not the point of the sermon. You're not sinning if you're wearing earrings tonight. Uh, we're not sure exactly, again, where these earrings come from. Um, oftentimes there was pagan representations on earrings. They were meant to be a ritual thing amongst pagan religions. So oftentimes those were involved in pagan worship. Sometimes the things themselves were, were um, kept as a metal that they could then take down and sell for their own personal profit and gain, which is looked down upon in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Of course, if you're familiar with scripture in Exodus chapter 32, the people take their jewelry, including their earrings, they melt it down together and build a golden calf, an image to worship God. But scholars say that it's widely attested, not just that earrings themselves often were an an image of an idol, but actually idols themselves often wore earrings. I guess you decorate your fake gods. I don't know how I wasn't alive, you know, 3,000 years ago. But idols themselves often had earrings in their own decorations. And so perhaps these, these earrings were actually a part of idol worship themselves. But they're clear that this is not just a, a stigma against earrings. God doesn't hate people who wear earrings. God's not against our earrings. God's against gods in our lives that would compete with him. That's the point. And they take it and they hide it under the terebinth tree. This is another way of just saying he digs it and he sticks it underneath there. It's not as if Jacob's hiding it like it's his secret hiding spot so he can go back to it. Right? He's hiding it. He's getting rid of these things entirely. The first lesson that we see here about God's faithfulness um, in this passage is this, that God's faithfulness to us should lead to our faithfulness to him. God's faithfulness to us should then lead us to our faithfulness to him. God had been faithful to Jacob, and Jacob recognized, and as he went back to the place and was reminded of what God had promised him 20 years ago, and as he looked at his life now and saw that God had kept and was keeping his promises to him, Jacob took seriously the fact that that inspired and required of him to then follow that God faithfully with his own life. That when God is faithful to us, it should inspire in us an attitude of obedience and a humility towards him. See, there's a freedom in faithfulness. Isn't there? There's a freedom that's found in a faithful relationship where we know that someone will be faithful to us. But understanding that freedom is important. Because our human nature all often tends to think of, well, if there's freedom that God is faithful to us, then that means I can do whatever I want and God will be faithful to me. That's not the point. That's not what a proper understanding of God's faithfulness means. Rather, it means God will be faithful to me no matter what, and that faithfulness should inspire me to do all I can to be faithful to honor and glorify him. Think of it this way. If, uh, if you're, well, most of us in here, probably there's not many kids in here. Most of us in here have been on a first date with someone before, right? Most of us have been on a first date. And if maybe some of you are super confident people and you had no butterflies in your stomach, I admire you, right? For the 99% of us, when we go on a first date or went on our first date, there's lots of butterflies. Because literally, right, any words you say could like sink the thing. 
right? Like you could say one ill-timed comment, you could say the right comment, but in the wrong tone of voice and like it's done, right? Like it's, it's all over, right? You could have the best of intentions and forget one simple thing and it's all the way over with. I was reading a story and how this guy had, had worked up the courage to finally ask this girl out. They go to this nice restaurant right outside of their college campus and they have this great dinner and then he goes to pay for dinner and realizes he left his wallet in the dorm room, right? And then she goes, oh, no worries, I have mine. She had one credit card, which wasn't accepted by the restaurant. So their friends had to come bail them out and pay for him. He said, needless to say, she never went on another date with me, right? Now, if they'd been married for 25 years and the husband forgot his credit card, like the wife would be like, oh, you're so, like, that's just so funny, right? It wouldn't be a deal breaker. It would just be something that's funny. Now, here's the thing. In dating, we get this inner human relationships. If there's not faithfulness opposed to us, oftentimes we live with this fear of almost that we're going to break the relationship with any mistake we make. Now, when we have a faithful relationship with, with someone, and lots of us in here are married or have been married for quite a while, that we know that even amidst our mistakes, that they're still going to be faithful to us. But the idea is this. We don't take their faithfulness to us for granted as if I can go do whatever I want. Right? My wife is faithful to me. That doesn't mean that I can go live my life however I want. The idea is I know my wife is faithful to me. That means that I'm going to try and do all I can to love and show my devotion and faithfulness back towards her. It's not take advantage of the faithfulness that's been shown to me. Are we viewing God's faithfulness to us as a license to sin or a motivation to obey? Are we taking God's faithfulness to us in our lives as a license to sin? Well, I can do whatever I want. He's going to be faithful to me. That's, that's missing the point. Are we taking God's faithfulness to us as a motivation to obey? Because Jacob saw God's faithfulness as he reflected on his life and said, man, we need to purify ourselves. We need to get rid of all this that would be dishonoring to God. We need to vote ourselves anew to holiness and to follow after God. Verse 5 says this, that as, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Recall last week, if you missed it, Jacob and his, Jacob's sons, excuse me, tricked a whole city and then killed all of them. That's the short version of it, right? And the, the idea would be that it would be other people want to attack them out of revenge. But God strikes a terror in it so that Jacob leaves in safety and he realizes that this is actually from the Lord providing again for him. Verse 6, and Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. He goes again to Bethel, and as God commands, he makes an altar to him, and he names this altar El Bethel. El is the, the Hebrew word for God. And he focuses not on the place in which he is, but Jacob tries to focus again on the altar significant because of the God to which it is worshiping. So he worships God there. Verse 8 is this little side note that seems insignificant but helps wrap the story into conclusion. It says, And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bekuth, which means the oak of weeping. She like that, that verse kind of pops up. And if we haven't read through the whole story, we're like, wait, Deborah, Rebecca, who are we talking about here? All right, step back. Rebecca 
is the mother of Jacob, right? Jacob is Rebekah's favorite. If you remember in the conflict that happened between Jacob and Esau, when Jacob left, remember we said that Jacob will never see his mother again. And upon entering back into the land, they, they then encounter not Rebekah who has since passed, but they encounter Deborah who was the servant who came from her family down to the land of Canaan with Rebekah in chapter 24 of the book of Genesis. And by telling us this, it helps us understand two things. First, we see here that it kind of completes the story of Jacob, this sad irony, and in a sense, a sad story in which he never was reunited with his mother. All the things she went through to try and scheme for him ended ultimately in heartbreak and that she was never reconnected with him on this earth. But it also is significant because chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 35 is one of transition. And so we have two deaths recorded here, actually three, but two significant ones pointing that the faith is now passed on to the next generation. And by talking about Deborah's death, it's indicating that Rebecca has also died. And it's starting to say that now the focus is shifting down towards the next generation after them. Verse 9, they're still in Bethel when God shows up again. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. This um, this passage actually is a parallel and has a lot of similarities with Genesis chapter, I believe it's 23, sorry, I didn't write it down, 22 or 23, when after Abraham passes the greatest test of his life, which was the sacrifice of Isaac, God showed up and restated the promises to him. Jacob had survived the greatest trial of his life, which was a 20-year journey away from the land, has come back home in obedience to God. And just like God did to Abraham, to Jacob, God is now reaffirming the promises to him. The original promises in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, which were given to Isaac and to Jacob, were for blessing, for land, and for offspring. We've seen over and over throughout the last several chapters that Jacob has been blessed by God in numerous and, and uncountable ways. Right? We see the blessing. Again here, land is re-emphasized as part of the blessing that God will continue to give to Jacob. And offspring is a continued blessing and a continued promise towards Jacob. Not only that, but two unique things about this passage that, it, that inspires that will come from Jacob are nations, right? A nation and a company of nations. So we're not just talking about a big family here, Jacob. We're not talking about a lot of people home for Christmas. We're talking about a nation, a lot of people. Not only that, but kings shall come from you as well. Royalty, ultimately looking forward to royalty, not just of a human ruler, but of a divine ruler, the Messiah who would come from the line of Jacob. Verse 13, then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. 
Jacob, again, calls it Bethel. He pours a drink offering. It's the first drink offering actually given in Scripture. Later in, in throughout the, the Old Testament, it's given such as burnt and peace offerings. And this is the first instance of it. We don't know if that carries any significance, but it's there. And, and Jacob is clearly offering this as worship to God. What's amazing that, that God's promise to him is clear on who it depends on. It doesn't depend on Jacob. It depends on God. Look again at verse 12. God says, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will again give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. This triple mention of God is the one who's providing, God is the one who's giving. It's a reminder that these promises that are true to Jacob aren't because of Jacob's standing or Jacob's effort, but they're true because of what God has done for us. And this is the second truth that we see in this passage about God's faithfulness, is that God's faithfulness is all about grace. God's faithfulness to us is all about grace. Grace is God's undeserved gifts and good kindness towards us. It's something that none of us deserve. God doesn't look at Jacob and his family and be like, wow, Jacob, you've lived a really impressive life. Because of your impressive resume, And all of this, I'm going to do this for your family. No, he just says, I'm going to give this to you. It's not because of anything you've earned, but it's because of my grace toward you. This goes so countercultural to how we often think about how life should work. Right? We're Americans. People should get what they deserve. Nothing more, nothing less. What do kids get for Christmas? Well, it depends. Were they naughty or were they nice? Right? We joke about it and we sing songs about it and make cute movies about it, but it subtly reflects the truth of our culture. That we think that if you're a good person, if you do enough good stuff, then you deserve something good from someone else. Whereas if you're a bad person and you've done bad things this year, then you don't deserve things or you deserve like coal or something sad like that. Right? We have these naughty and nice lists. But the reality is this, that none of us deserve anything good from God. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that what we deserve, it says we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. God's righteous anger towards sin in our lives. That's what we deserve. That's what each of us deserve. But God's faithfulness to us is all about his grace to us. God's not faithful to us because we've done so much that he's impressed by us. God's faithful to us because he loves us. Because it's undeserved, but he wants to show us his mercy and his kindness anyways. See, this helps us understand that if God's faithfulness is all about grace, then we can't earn it in any way. There's nothing that you can do that will make God more faithful to you. He is faithful. We can't manipulate him and try and make him more faithful. There's nothing we can do to earn his faithfulness. Yet at the same time, there's also nothing that we can do if we are his and are his children and believe in Jesus. There's also nothing we can do to lose God's faithfulness. Because if it's truly all about God's grace, it's undeserved. And no sin that you have in your life is greater than the grace that's in God's own heart. And nothing that we could do could cause ourselves to lose God's faithfulness to us. God is faithful to us as a means of his grace to each and every one of us. It's not because of what we've done or what we will do someday. Verse 16 says this, Then they journeyed from Bethel, 
When they were still some distance from Ephrath, they're headed south again. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. When her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you are having another son. Now, why this specific mention of a son? It goes back to chapter 30, verse 24, when Rachel, who had been barren for many years, finally was giving birth to a son, and she decided to name this son Joseph. Joseph, whose names means, may he add another, or may God add another. And in chapter 30, verse 24, it says, she called his name Joseph, saying, may God add to me another son. It was her prayer request and her desire to God to have another son. By the midwife shouting this to her in her labor, she's saying, God has answered your prayer. This this desire of your heart, this prayer of yours, God has answered it now. Verse 18, and as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Ader. So she cries out as she's dying and names her son Ben-Oni, which means this kind of constant idea of tragedy. His name literally means son of my sorrow or son of my grief or despair. And that she calls out in her perhaps dying words that she calls out, this is what his name. This is, I believe, the only instance in scripture in which someone's name is changed. There's kind of this conflict between a father and a mother over the naming of someone. If you've noticed throughout almost all of these stories that we've gone through, the mom is the one who names the kids. And here Jacob steps up and changes the name from son of my sorrow, which would be a constant reminder to Jacob of the death of his beloved wife, Rachel. Remember, who was his favorite? It would be the constant reminder of the death of her, and he changes it instead to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, the right hand being the symbol of favor and of power by someone. So rather than saying son of my sorrow, it's son of my right hand or son who is favored by me. the, The right hand is also an idiom in Hebrew for someone headed south. And so there's that idea as well that as they're headed south, so it's kind of a double play on words. But Benjamin's name is changed. And seeing how this happens helps us set up the story that's to come later on in the conflict, not of Jacob, but of his sons that happens. And we see how Benjamin's life comes into existence. And so we see that not only has Rebekah died, but now Rachel has passed away as well. Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, who worked so many extra years for her, has passed away. And Israel's journeyed on to another place. Verse 22. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, when I read that verse, I went, wait, what? Like, well, why, why is that in there? Why, why is that significant? Um, I think for a few reasons. First, scholars say that by, by specifically calling Jacob here by his name Israel, it's implicating that now what's going to happen has consequences, not just for one person, but for tribes, for generations to come. That's why the word Israel is used for Jacob in the start of, chapter, of verse 22. But remember this, Bilhah was originally the servant of Rachel, Rachel, who had passed away. Reuben is the oldest of Jacob's son. Reuben is the son of Leah. 
Reuben's two younger brothers, Simeon and Levi, were the two other younger brothers, the two oldest after him of Leah, who went last week in Genesis chapter 34 and deceived and murdered all the Shechemites. And now we see here this disgrace that Reuben has caused to his own family. This idea, again, of Jacob's passivity, which we saw last week, comes up again, that Jacob heard of it. The exact same thing that happened last week after his daughter was raped. So why does, why does Reuben do this awful thing? We don't know. It's hard to put motives on it for sure. But custom would say that this is probably a grasp for power within his own family. This was actually custom. And we see this happen both in threats towards kings, that their concubines will be taken, that other people will steal them from them. And we actually see this done in 2 Samuel chapter 16, again, when Absalom does this to his father, David as a power play to try and gain more power in the kingdom. And so Reuben, we're, we're, we're thinking here, is trying to get more power within the family by trying to provoke this and have this happen. So we see here now that, that, that this happens to him. And immediately after this, it says this, verse, the end of verse 22. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The son of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan and Aaron. See, there's another interesting thing, especially by following immediately with the family tree, which lists out these sons, the 12 tribes of Israel that follow immediately after him. We see here later the implications of the actions that happen in Genesis chapter 34 and chapter 35. It actually follows up with it in Genesis chapter 49. When the time comes for Jacob to bless his kids, Reuben goes for a blessing and Jacob says to him, there will not be a blessing for you because of what you did here to Bilhah. When Simeon and Levi, the next oldest, come to him, the father says, there will not be the special blessing for you because of what you did in chapter 34 to the Shechemites. And so who does the greatest blessing fall to of Jacob's sons, of one who has promised great things? It comes to the next in line, which is Judah. Where is the ultimate line of the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ? What lineage does he come from? He comes from Judah. And this little verse is set up in here so that we know why that the birthright was skipped over Reuben, why it skipped Simeon and Levi and went towards Judah because it ultimately is all pointing all of scripture to Jesus Christ. The final short part of our story, verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or at Kiriath Arba, that is in Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. There's this kind of final reunion for Isaac's death as Jacob and Esau are both there reunited again with their father as he passes on. And it's the conclusion of this episode of Genesis, Genesis chapter 36, starting the next story with the customary phrase, these are the generations, signifying the next story that comes in the book. And as we look back here at seeing this reconciliation, the scene that is very similar to at the end of Abraham's life, where Isaac and Ishmael come together to bury their father Abraham. The last truth that we see from this passage, this story, not just in this chapter, but in these many chapters we've looked at, 
is that God's faithfulness can always be trusted. God's faithfulness for us can always be trusted. See, we look now at these family lines that are played out here, and we look at these 12 sons, and we've already seen so much of the the infighting from amongst them. And the suspense is already building as we look at, like, how is this going to work out well? Right? How is this? All these kids are already murdering people. They're making power plays. They're doing awful things to their own family members. How is this going to work out well? But it's a reminder to us as we look forwards that we can look back and see that God's faithfulness in our lives can always be trusted. Look at what God brought Jacob through. He's back in the promised land. He was gone for 20 years. Not just because he wanted, he didn't want, he was running for his very life. But God was faithful and brought him back. God promised him blessing. Jacob left with literally nothing but the clothes on his back and he came back saying, I have so much. He said to Esau, I have so much. I can give you almost everything and I would still have more left over. I've been so blessed by God. He's been reunited with his brother. The the miracle of reconciliation that took place, God was faithful to that and ultimately he was reunited with his father before his death. Oftentimes in our lives though, we doubt God's faithfulness to us. We sometimes in circumstances and in trials and tribulations can doubt God's faithfulness to us. Why do we sometimes doubt God's faithfulness to us when we can look at scripture and see the faithfulness of God on display? I think one reason we doubt God's faithfulness sometimes is our faith can be too emotional. Our faith can be too emotional, emotionally driven. And we feel like God's faithful to us if we can feel it. But if we're not feeling his love, if we're not feeling his presence, if we're not feeling his faithfulness in our lives, we sometimes hit the panic button. And we're like, how can God be faithful to me? I haven't felt his faithfulness in my life recently. And sometimes our faith is far too emotional. It's not that there's not an emotional um, aspect to our faith, but our faith can be far too based simply on our emotions rather than our beliefs and rather than on God's character and who he is. Sometimes our faith is far too circumstantial. We think God is faithful until the first bad thing happens. And then we're like, well, I guess not. No, God is faithful and our circumstances don't change that fact about God. And sometimes in the midst of our own circumstances, we need to remind ourselves. We need to look back on our lives. We need to open up God's word and look at the times where he's been faithful to people through so much and be reminded of his character. And even though our present circumstances, it can be hard to see in difficult times in that moment how God is being faithful to us. We can know that he is. But our circumstances don't drive our faith. Lastly, sometimes we doubt God's faithfulness simply because our faith is too shallow. Our faith is too shallow. And we can look at the suffering of our lives. We can look at the suffering of this world. And we can say, how could God actually be good through all this? How could God use any of this? We're going to look, if, if we were to continue in the story of Genesis, which by God's grace, I hope we're able to at some point. And it, it ultimately comes to a conclusion where at the very end of Genesis, Joseph looks at his brothers who have betrayed and have heard have done real evil to him. And he makes this amazing phrase, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Oftentimes, our faith is too shallow. 
The evil in our world we think has compromised God's faithfulness, that it's stronger than God. And we need to renew our faith and see in God is a greater faithfulness to us and to his people than even the evil that is in our own world. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy for me to see the faithfulness of God in other people, but it's hard when I look in the mirror. Maybe that's just me, but I think for some of us, sometimes we can see the struggles of other people like, oh, hey, maybe God's doing this in your life. Maybe God's trying to work here. But oftentimes when my life is filled with difficulty, it's like the panic button goes off and I'm like, God can't be using this. What's going on? My friends, sometimes we need to learn to preach to ourselves, to remind ourselves of who God is, not just to remind other people, yes, but to remind ourselves that we serve a faithful God who works all things together for our good and for his ultimate glory. God's faithfulness can always be trusted in our lives. And the most amazing thing about God's faithfulness is his faithfulness to always forgive us. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And if you don't have a relationship with God, if you don't know this Jesus who we sung about and who we celebrate this Christmas season, God is faithful to forgive your sin. You can have a relationship with Jesus by placing your faith and trust in him. He's faithful to, 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 um, to forgive your sin. He's just to do it. He's the only one who can. All he asks is that we confess that we believe in him. I don't know what's going on in your life tonight, but I just want to remind you, God is faithful. God is faithful. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Isaac. He was faithful to Jacob. He's faithful to you, and he's faithful to me. God, we thank you that you are a God who's faithful to us that whatever circumstances may come our way, no matter what emotions we may feel, no matter what evil we may be experiencing, no matter what suffering is in our lives, that doesn't change the fact that you are faithful to your people. God, we thank you that your faithfulness can always be trusted, that your forgiveness for us is always there, that you invite us to a relationship with you. God, would you comfort some of us tonight who need to be comforted? Would you reveal yourself to those of us who we need to see you for the first time? Would you remind us again tonight that you are a faithful God and we can always trust in you? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.